0: The Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast is brought to you by Higher Gravity, a craft beer bar located in Cincinnati, Ohio in the Northside and Blue Ash neighborhoods. And I don't know about you, Mike, but this is my go-to bar. It's my walking distance bar. It's the best selection of beer in the city bar. It is the Mug Club bar. It is the best draft selection bar. It's the best to-go beer bar and, frankly, the best bartender's bar. I love the one in Northside
1: because... It is a fantastic place. There is a massive amount of beers on tap, a great bottle selection. I love it, man. Hard to find a place that still really loves beer, and they do
0: it. And it's for that reason. We'll see you there. We'll be at the bar. We'll be at the bar. (laughs) Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bruce Guys Happy Hour Podcast. My name is Brett Coleman Baker, and I am here with the one and only Michael Morgan. Mike, how the hell are you? I am doing
1: spectacular. It's Friday, I got a beer. We got a great guest on the line. We have on
0: the line Bill Owens. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Bill Owens. Founder of America's first brew pub, Buffalo Bill's Brewery, in 1983. Ain't never heard of it. <laughs> right? <laughs> I didn't know that we had a first brew pub in America. I right. just thought they always existed, which was not the case, obviously. No. Unlike some of the
1: people that we have interviewed, I don't know that Bill Owens' name is known that well, even in beer geek circles. And that's kind of tragic because this guy has done some
0: crazy important stuff. But you have heard of the three beer styles that he invented in this country, being amber ale, pumpkin ale, and IPA, which is over 30% of all crap beer sales in the country. I have heard of those. (laughs) (laughs) Drank quite a few of them. Maybe not so many of the pumpkin beers, but whatever. Fuck this, actually. (laughs) God damn it, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) But people do love their pumpkin
1: beers. What's additionally crazy about this guy is that he didn't start out as a brewer. He's primarily, first and foremost, a photojournalist. If you go to his Wikipedia page to read his bio, it kind of yada
0: yadas over the fact that he started America's First Brew Pub. You wouldn't have known he did anything with craft beer or have anything to do with anything about it at all. Because he's done so much other stuff. He is a prolific and fantastic photographer. Yeah. He has won a Guggenheim fellowship. He has won two different National Endowments for the Arts. He has made a whole series of books that detail American life in the 70s and the 60s, suburbia, working, leisure, and our kind of people, American groups and rituals. I mean, the man started Beer Magazine and American Brewer Magazine, and he founded the American Distilling Institute, but all those four things are And he wrote one of the most
1: influential homebrew books.
0: He did. How to Build a Small Brewery Draft Beer in 10 Days in 1982, which helped so many people start breweries in the 80s. The dude has had an indelible mark on craft beer, but you would never know it.
1: Yeah, and he's continuing to transform how we drink as Americans today. He uh, founded the American Distilling Institute back in the early 2000s, 2003, I think. And that was a period of time when craft distilling in this country was still kind of a new concept. And it has really taken hold. So he's at the forefront of the American craft beer movement in the early 1980s. And then he is at the forefront of the craft distilling industry in the early 2000s.
0: I mean, he's a true visionary, and I can't wait to get his side of the story. So on that note, Bill, thank you very much for joining us today. We're excited to have you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Looking at your history and looking at what you did with Buffalo Bill's brewery, you started that in, well, opened in 1983, but you started homebrewing in about 1969. Is that
2: correct? Well, uh, let's see. No, I went off to college in 57, 1958. I went to college, and in college, uh, you could go to the local grocery store and buy a can of blue ribbon malt. And uh, on the side of the can, it would say, do not add water, do not add
3: yeast, <laughs> do
2: not ferment. <laughs> so in a plastic bucket, I would ferment beer and drink it. So that's how I got started. is home brewing in college in my, my apartment. You published
1: How to Build a Small Brewery. Draft Beer in 10 Days in 1982. Yeah. And the thing that, you know, Papazian had also done this uh, great homebrewing book. So so there was a couple of things that really kind of set your book apart. And one was that focus on Real grain brewing, yeah, and the other was that you were giving good practical advice at a, at a period of time. I mean, today you can get on the internet and you can buy everything you need for home brewing, yeah. you know, in five minutes. But back then, you're helping people learn how they can brew with. They can turn an igloo cooler into a mash tun.
2: And let me interrupt. It wasn't an igloo cooler. The igloo coolers were zinc. And I went to the plastic cooler because it's food-grade plastic immediately. And it's a horizontal igloo or tall and narrow, which makes your bed too deep. Okay. But it was double-jacketed. So you need the double-jacket so you don't lose heat. But but, but that's the point is that you're providing really –
1: at this period of time, you're providing really practical advice on how you can build a system out of things that are easily obtainable.
2: I got a lot of criticism for that book because they said, oh, you're writing it for the 12th grader. Why aren't you writing it, blah, 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 more technical? I didn't know more technical, you know.
1: So you start with homebrewing and you give very good homebrewing advice, but you start out your professional life. As a photojournalist and a really good one, Suburbia is the first book that you did back in 1972 – very heralded re-released in 1999 you just released altamont 1969 recently right right so uh, altamont were you there or or just yeah uh, i, I yeah? was the
2: only i was up in the sound tower and i have the shots of the hells angels with the pool who's beating everybody up wow holy <laughs> okay, shit remember, i haven't seen that the, book okay. yet but i'm going to buy it uh here here's the story on that is that uh, I, I, I knew uh, I'd been uh, mugged at riots, anti-war stuff a couple of times. So I knew when I got to the, the Stones concert to get in position where nobody could get to me and the place to be was up on the sound tower. And so when I went home and, and then later saw I had the shots of the angels, uh, when the Rolling Stone and Esquire and other publications published those photographs, I used an alias. Oh wow! I would not do. I would not do anything to endanger my wife and my new baby.
1: Hell's Angels definitely at that period of time. You, they're not people you wanted to mess with, man.
2: No, no, no. They murdered people.
1: Yeah, and yeah. It's kind of surprising. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson lived through it.
2: I think they beat him up once, but the he probably deserved it. Um, the Altamont uh, stuff was stolen by the angels, by somebody doing a book. I'd loaned them the negatives. The angels broke in their house, stole all this stuff. And all I have is copies of copies. 50 years pass, and those prints were in a box. There was 37 prints and probably in two sheets of color in a box. And a woman from Italy who published a book called about my photographs in Europe, Uh, found out about the Altamont thing, and she put together this book.
1: that's cool as hell. I've read in 1981, you decided that you wanted to start a brewery. So where does does that come from? How do you go from being a photojournalist to I want to start a brewery?
2: Okay, what happened was uh, I heard that California state law was going to change and the writing of the new legislation was going to occur, I think, in 80, it was written in 81, in January 82. And I had a three months lead time. It took me nine months to raise the money. Uh, California law was going to change that allowed you to sell beer regardless of the source. That means you could do a brew pub. So the law was going to change. I went uh, went to have my taxes done, and I said to my CPA, "How do you get money in our society? I don't know anything about
3: money."
2: And he, he just reached in our in a drawer, pulled out a limited partnership agreement, and he says, "White out almond farm, <laughs> and put, in, put in brewery." <laughs> and so I went to the you know you got to go to a print shop and print thirty copies of it, staple them together. And I made my shares $3,000 each. And eventually, as I recall, I raised $92,000. But I didn't raise it. I, I, as soon as you hit, I hit 60000 you legally, you got uh, most of your money raised. You can start spending that money. So I'm starting to spend some of it to put the equipment together. But I had the law changed in January. And so for the next nine months, I'm raising money, looking for a building, trying to put the equipment list together and by uh, September uh, by September I was able to uh, find a building at a dollar square foot two thousand dollars a month and put the equipment together do the build out, open the bar and by then you're divorced you have no <laughs> money the house is sold what are you you take your little share of about I think thirty or forty thousand dollars. Put that into the business also, and you open you open your doors, and people came a glass of beer was a dollar twenty five wow. wow and my numbers, the way I figured out it costs seven cents to make a glass of beer, and i 'm selling it for a dollar twenty five then quickly to a dollar fifty
0: so you were the very first brew pub in the United States
2: uh, yeah, I like to claim that, but at the same time, two other breweries. Added a pub to their establishment, so they called uh. themselves a brew pub.
1: And so, Mendocina, or is that they're technically like August 1983, you're September 1983?
2: I, 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 there's no way to know those dates because what happened was uh, the third one was G- Burt Grant up in Yakima, Washington, and all three of us opened that in I think in September of that year. So, and none of us grabbed the title the first. Uh, I, I, I was reluctant to do that, um, to say as the first, cause I couldn't prove it, you know? And so I just, you know, one, I used to say one of the first, but now I'm claiming to be the first. So Bill, you know, we, we
0: talked a lot about the, like what it takes to get this first brew pub open, but but why, why did you want to do it? Why did you want to open a brew pub?
2: I had no choice. I had no choice. I, I I'm a photojournalist. I had a Guggenheim under my belt. I had maybe two books under my belt, and you're unemployable. Nobody's going to hire you. No newspaper is going to hire. They're going to hire somebody out of college and pay them less money. It was my only alternative way to make money was to open a brew pub.
0: You literally got strangled by your own success. That's crazy.
2: Yeah, that's uh, – uh, I, I at this age, I should be pretty bitter about a failed photography career, but I'm still producing books, so it wasn't that much of a failure.
1: Not only do you open the first brew pub in America, but you do several other really innovative things early on. And we, as American beer drinkers, owe you for actually several different styles. Um, amber Ale is, is you.
2: So I did Amber, I, we did, I did a lager, Amber Ale, and a stout and and, and oh, oh i got one really good side story of uh, what i created uh my cpa was uh, going through a divorce and so i was ma- doing a beer once i said my i should do wait a minute you can do bitter beers i was using like three ounces of hops in the, 150 gallons or something like that Well, let's see. I'm going to make a bitter beer. Oh, maybe I should add six ounces of hops. No, maybe I should add nine. (laughs) Oh, how about a pound of hops? (laughs) I'm going to create the bitterest beer in America, Alimony Ale.
1: It's one of the best named brews in the history of America.
3: (laughs) It really is
2: funny. So what I did, you'll like the rest of the story. I did on the side of the bottle a classified ad that he's looking for a woman. (laughs) and and, and his phone number his real phone number one day my CPA showed up with this woman at the bar uh, from that little classified ad and then about five months later uh, she showed up to the bar and was having a beer and I started talking to her and I said well what happened to Steve she said well it didn't work out he kept notes on how much money he was spending on me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand why the first wife
2: left. Right. But don't forget, I did uh, Diaper Pale Ale. Remember that label? Did you see that one? I have not seen that one, one?
1: actually. I I would uh, tell you it sounds delicious, but it doesn't.
2: (laughs) No, I did Diaper Pale Ale. And then I did one on the celebration of the Golden Gate Bridge with a, uh, a, a person committing suicide. But uh, <laughs> if you look real fi- finally, it was a bungee jump. It was a bungee <laughs> jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. You were
0: trolling people back in 1980.
2: <laughs> but you, you got to remember, these things had, I would do maybe 500 labels and maybe do 100 bottles. Uh, there was no, uh, I had no distributor. I just sold the stuff at the bar. And I had no ability to grow. I didn't have the ability to grow the business. I did a business plan to build a mother brewery and do five satellites. That would be the future. And I raised about 300000 and I could not put it together and lost everybody's. I just didn't lose it. I just dwindled it away. Uh, I could not. I, I couldn't expand into the business next to me to get more floor space to get put in a bigger bar and more food. And, uh, and eventually, after 12, 14 years, whatever, I, I just, I had to, get, I, I've sold out. You know, I moved on.
1: Alimony Ale not only was it brilliantly named, but it's re- credited as being the first real American IPA. So you are credited with the style Amber Ale. American IPA being based on English IPAs, but really super hopped. Also, pumpkin ale. Uh, you love lo- love it or, or hate it. Um, That's huge. now. the pumpkin ale. Yeah, it's There's really big. People now. love
0: pumpkin ale. What What did you do for that first pumpkin beer? What gave you the idea for that? Why did you make it? Uh,
2: what, I I I stole the idea for the pumpkin ale from George Washington. Really. George Washington had a bre- would take pumpkins and ferment and make a sugar base and uh, to make uh, beer. And so I said, well, George Washington can do a pumpkin ale, pumpkin beer. I can. and I didn't like the word pumpkin beer. I can do a pumpkin ale, <laughs> but I think I even I even failed to do a trademark on that, so that got away from me. Uh, but I grew the big giant pumpkin myself one year. But here here's how you do it and everybody else is lying to you. Uh, you you can take the pumpkin, you can grow it, you pop it into the oven, you bake it to get out the sugars, you dump that into your mash tun, you mash it, and then all that mash goes out to the hog farmer, and the hogs love to have a pumpkin mixed in with their their spent grains. The problem is, there's absolutely no pumpkin flavor whatsoever. It's, virtually impossible because the pumpkin flavor is based on a sugar molecule and the sugar molecule is fermented off and so i'm tasting this and i said oh my god there's no flavor in it at all and i look out the front window of buffalo bills and there's lucky supermarket across the street i walk over to the spice rack and there it is pumpkin pie spices in a little can (laughs) go back pour the spices into a coffee percolator and make a quart a pumpkin juice, right? <laughs> so then go to the bright beer tank, pour it in the bright beer tank, carbonated and you got pumpkin ale. Bam, pumpkin <laughs> ale is invented for America.
1: Another beer that I have seen a label
2: for was uh Tasmania ale. And Tasmanian Devil. I got sued by just, Disney uh Disney disposed me on that took me down, made me swear in front of a Whatever the, I don't know what it's called. They take your testimony. A deposition. And that happened because uh, I got a can of of hops in a metal can from Australia. They're trying to sell me some hops for my brewery. And they sent me a sample, and I thought to myself, Well, what's Tasmania known for? It's known for that little vicious dog, the Tasmanian devil. So I went to uh, Karen, who is still my one of my graphic designers today, and said, uh, look up an encyclopedia, the Tasmanian devil dog, and create a label, which she did. And we so we did the Tasmanian devil, uh, and uh, Disney saw it and. Uh, had me do the d- d- deposition uh, was I inspired by the Tasmanian devil cartoon and I said, Disney has a cartoon on the devil and <laughs> uh, so uh, they, they, they wanted me to cease and desist on the, on that beer even though it wasn't sold in a supermarket it's just because I was too me- media aware yeah. and uh put the publicity out there on the Tasmanian devil.
1: You were also on the flip side of the trademark thing. You, I'm not exactly clear on what you did, didn't do, and what you still own, but you trademarked the word brew pub in California, correct?
2: No, I tried to, and there was an outcry, and I was publishing American Brewer Magazine at the time, too, and I didn't want to hurt my circulation. Uh, people, I didn't want people to dislike me because I I bragged about that I had applied for a trademark. And Bert Grant and some other people uh, uh, wrote me some letters, called me and said, you know, you shouldn't do this. It should be in the public domain. So I didn't. I did not follow through with, and own the word brew pub. Well, they didn't stop Fritz Maytag from uh, trademarking steam beer,
0: so why they reach out to you?
2: I don't know. Uh, Fritz Maytag has money. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I never really considered Fritz part of the, or the renaissance. He, uh, before the laws changed, he already owned his brewery, <clears throat> and so he, you know, he already knew, knew how to run a business, you know? He went to... You know, it was educated, you know with the the next generation we're coming from that home brewing side of the of doing things at home and self education
1: uh, well and the, the, the whole bootstraps i mean half having, having to figure out how to make your own equipment that whole thing it, it's yeah. a different it's a different experience what you were doing, what Grossman was doing, what Jack McAuliffe
2: was doing. Um, but Jack it, didn't it, last that long. Jack failed right away right yeah yeah he, he uh, the time I met him he uh, was delivering beer in the trunk of his car. Well that's 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 early self-distribution but yeah well you can't make a living doing that right
1: no and he didn't <laughs>
2: No uh, he uh, Jack McCall's brewery was made out of a two inch pipe. It was a grid pipe about six feet tall where you had the mash tun was a 50 gallon drum cut in half. And then it drained down to a kettle mounted between some other pipe, uh, down to a fermentation chip between some other pipe and then down to the kettle. So it was almost all gravity fed. He was the first uh, brewery in modern times. Right. Period. And that, I lay that on Jack uh, to have done that. But he... Uh, I don't know what happened there and why he failed but you know well I think you
1: got it he he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't scale up so let's talk about that because that's kind of where you part of your vision was to franchise the brew pub and that I mean in the early 80s that's brilliant it's a great idea a lot of people at rock bottom got really wicked rich doing that so what? How how did you try it, and why are you not richer than King Grossman? Uh,
2: because uh, the, the other guy who was do- doing that was from Seattle's. Uh, and that brewery's no longer there, but he had uh, raised public money, and a couple of people also had gone and uh, gone beyond the limited partnership, which is limited. So you can only have so many investors. Um. One guy in Portland, Oregon, had 400 investors in his place uh, from like at f- $50 to $5,000. I did have the prospectus and started to raise money, uh, and, and I was doing it, and I'll admit this, uh, I was doing it illegally. I had a boiler room with guys on the phone <laughs> calling people. <laughs> And the SEC called me up and uh, uh, I had to hire an attorney to go face them uh, to cease and to cease immediately. <laughs> they came and audited my books and thank God I wasn't drawing a salary or I would have been in serious trouble. You know, I, you know, I wasn't a pyramid. I was
0: you know, <laughs> You're trying, trying to start a legitimate business.
2: Yeah, but there's no way I could get the money together.
0: Well, they don't teach you any of this stuff either. They're just like, hey, you want to start a business? Just get a bunch of money together and go do it in America. But then what they don't really tell you is like, well, there's a shitload of stipulations and it's a lot easier if you just have money. Good luck getting it.
2: Well, so like I'm really uh, resentful of the Silicon Valley guys who go out and raise $10 million. My son has worked for three different corporations. One of them raised $30 million they lasted three years and then closed the doors. So,
0: <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, they're all you know, crooks. But uh, you know, but I don't the, know any better. I
2: I don't know how to. Re- and I have personality. I have the ideas. I can put together the business plan. But that takes. And I've never had a partner that worked ship that worked out, or hardly any marriages. Uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair the, enough. <laughs> fair enough. That's a tough one. Um. But how how do you do that money thing is I don't know. I've had success at it, but to take it to that next level, the next level, I don't know how you manage 100 employees. Uh, I couldn't do it. And how do you handle that 1,000 employees to scale these companies up?
1: There's only so much that one person can do. And it seems like um, you never just had the capital – to delegate in the way that lets you really grow well. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I and I can see that you know you tried to do that a few different times. One of them, so you you wind up selling Buffalo Bills. Was it ninety four?
2: Yes, I, it was time to go. The, it had been fourteen years. I I couldn't expand it beyond that. I'd been sued twice. Uh, and so when you go through a lawsuit, uh, they t- I got sued over American Brewer, American Brewer magazine and Beer the magazine. Uh, the guys I fired sued me, and by the time claiming they own it, right? Right. Though we never signed an agreement, there was an oral agreement, so the judge co- co- was convinced that. Uh, There was an agreement, and I owed them $1.3 million. What? That's a hell of a bill. (laughs) It's time to close the door and move on. And uh, uh, I just could not carry on, so uh, the final little bit of money I – put my clothes in a cardboard box and got in my car and disappeared and drove across America for taking three months, visiting brew pubs.
1: But before that, before that you tried, you were doing, you were contract brewing some of those Buffalo Bill brands, right? And you doing national distribution with that.
2: Yes. Yes. I, but I couldn't again, uh, I think for, uh, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, was doing punk and ale for me, and I needed to you know, or Alimony. One of them, I needed each time to come up with seven thousand bucks, and I couldn't come up with seven thousand cash and not, and make payroll. Yeah, you know, it, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't accumulate enough capital to make money. It, yeah, enough capital. I had no reserves at all. You know, I'm just month month to month My bills. You're paying doing about three hundred thousand a year. But you got rent, utilities, taxes, and that's, uh, I always paid my taxes, and I didn't cheat. <laughs> you got to do and that. I, or you, you, you're in serious trouble if you don't do that. Uh, unless you're a billionaire. <laughs> unless, unless, well, unless you, you inherit it from grandma. Right. this from your parents yeah. money-free and clear that you can go blow, and a lot of guys have done that. And, of course, I know Sam Adams quite well, who's worth a billion dollars now.
1: <laughs> yes, Jim Cook is quite hes quite a rich guy.
2: <laughs> uh, but don't, don't forget, I knew Pickett, Pete from Pete's Wicked Ale also quite well. Pete was doing really well.
1: He was huge in the late 90s.
2: Pete's Wicked Ale went under because one of the uh, owners was screwing the secretary, and he was married. <laughs> so that one crashed, and... Then he did his chocolate business, and then he wrote a stupid book. Oh my God! Did you, read, you ever read his book? No. No. Half the book is about him and his wife traveling. Uh, let's see. They had a potted plant in their car as they drove to California. That was the <laughs> highlight of that chapter. It sounds scintillating. It's boring. <laughs> Uh, but uh, you know, he was never he. He was a great spokesman. That's all. Pete, Pete was a spokesman. But so uh,
0: pulling this back around to I think where Mike was heading, the uh, you were getting these contract beers made. Uh, you end up losing the ability to continue to distribute and sell these beers yeah, nationally, I right?
2: But could, I couldn't. Have, Portland Brewing was doing it for me for a while, and I just could not. Uh, invoice them properly and uh, get the contracts signed and to put that whole, it's a whole nother business to contract just Brew. It's even harder. Yeah, yeah. You're dealing with wholesalers then. And that's what happened. One of my wholesalers sued me claiming he owned the brand. The hell? Well, you got to go to court. You got to hire an attorney and go to court and defeat the motherfucker. Uh, and you, but you spent thousands of dollars to defeat him that he doesn't own the brand to prove it to the judge as your name and your trademark is your pumpkin ale is my product, but people can sue you over nothing.
1: Well, didn't I, I, I read that I think it's Jeff Harry's, right? That you, right, right. he start he starts out as an intern. Well, he starts homebrewing because he read your book. And then he becomes your intern, and then you create a career for him, and then he starts. Uh, then you sell Buffalo Bills to him for what you had into it. And wasn't it him that that wound up taking the the rights?
2: Yeah, he sued me.
1: What a piece of shit! Well, well,
2: well, yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. What's yeah. the story with that? Uh, what happened on that is uh, it's the beer tra- the, the the transfer. I was hanging on to contract distilling, and I, my contract with him said that when I did pumpkin ale, I would put a map to the brewery on the bottom of a six-pack. And, but I had six-pack holders left over from the previous year, so I had the, the company go ahead and use those six-pack holders and then ordered new ones. But anyhow, maybe a couple thousand six-packs went out without the map, and he thought I had defrauded him, oh my and God. each map. Each map was worth fifty cents, so his judgment against me was sixty thousand dollars. Oh
0: my god, god. that's some horse shit right there! If I ever heard
1: yeah, it. Yeah,
2: but 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 that's you think you're going to win when you go to court?
1: Yeah, usually not. If if you have if you have if the, the guy with the money wins in court. I can uh, tell you.
2: Yeah, the but emotionally, after a certain point. Uh, I can't do that. I can't be involved in that anymore. I've got to go on to have my mind free.
0: Bill, you have me terrified that I'm about to be, get my ass sued off for owning a business here any any day now. Uh, I think this might play in. This is this is Mike and I's theory. So you created the Alpha King competition at GABF.
2: Yes. Oh, that God! You guys really did your stuff. <laughs> That's so much fun. And you had to be fifty IBUs which was unheard of
1: and not, when you uh, started in 99 that's
2: a, that's very high very high and some of the beers were coming in at like 100 and they were they were just terrific beers because now these guys knew to switch to the different varieties of hops
3: mm-hmm.
2: and make and the first uh, larry larry bell he was the first winner of the Awful king and there's a photo of him somewhere wearing some kind of wreath on his hair, and he just retired, as a matter of fact.
0: He did. Yeah, he made just a buttload of money. four hundred million.
2: I uh, how much?
0: I think it was four hundred million.
2: Yeah, I, I th- it was either him or somebody else I know who just got out of the business, and I just said, "Well, we're you're par- parking your yacht." <laughs> but Bells is one of the best in the industry. They're, they're they, so
1: good. They're, it's Greg Abier.
2: The two hearted ale and Whoa, to, to so do that beer and to break that barrier on hoppiness, but what that did is it really broke open uh and I used to say uh, yeast is yeast, it's just a cell breaking it uh, sugar molecules, yeah but the the next generation started using different varieties of yeast cells mm-hmm. and the different varieties of hops that give mouthfeel and all kinds of, uh, you could do those Belgium style beers and they're fairly clean.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm a little bit more curious about your thoughts on the Alpha King competition and what happened 10 years later with this IBU arms race. I like, And what I'm hearing is that you started these brewers pushing towards who can make the most bitter beer.
2: I, I guess so. I, I again by then I'm out of the. I did it for four or five years, and then I, after I sold the brewery, I think it continued.
0: It's still going to this day.
2: It's
1: an official event. It's 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 still a big thing, and uh, and yeah, it's uh, you know you're not going to be able to state it as a fact, but I think that really. That competition, when we talk about it's one beer festival, Great American Beer Festival, Charlie Papazian started it, but it's incredibly influential. And it is our theory that when you look at the date of 1999, and when you start introducing this Alpha King competition, you start to see IPAs take over the predominant growth in the craft beer market around about 2001, 2002. So, you know, we actually think that there's a damn good case to be made that you radically changed and shifted what craft breweries were making and what people were drinking nationally with that competition.
2: We we want the beer that has flavor. Well, and
1: even I mean amber, amber ambers have flavor, but that's a very radical sh- we went through a very radical shift very quickly in American craft beer taste from sweeter amber beers to really high hop beers. And it happened right after that Alpha King competition. And there was a sad thing that happened in 2022, which is that Buffalo Bills closed. Yep. Um it what do you what do you think, you know, you're you're removed from that and um you know, I don't, maybe not up uh, that that uh, you know nostalgic of it at, at this time. What, what do you think about what do you think about the closing of Buffalo Bills?
2: Well, the all the first the first three of us are gone. mendocino has gone. Uh, uh, the guy up in Yakima is gone. Bert Grant's justilyan is gone, gone, and Buffalo Bills is gone. And that's that's the way it goes. It's just it's very hard to sustain. Uh, businesses generation to generation and I've no, met a number of people where grandpa was worth millions and now there's nothing left
0: Bill, on that note it has been a wonderful conversation but we are actually uh, pressing up against the end of our time for our show but it's been, I mean this has just been fantastic uh, and you. my daughter is getting fussy as all, well. get out but that's, that's, that's not right. here or neither here nor
2: but- there No, that's that's. <laughs>
0: Say goodbye, Joanna.
2: <laughs> take care of the kid. Yeah, take care of the kids. You know, you want to. If you don't raise good kids, you're going to be a very disappointed adult.
0: That's my new biggest fear in life, Bill. Is uh, hopefully I can do as good a job with my daughter as my parents did with me. But time will tell on that. Uh, hey, you.
1: Bill. Thank you. Thank. Thanks for joining sure. us, and and thanks for all that you did. Uh, you're you are insignificantly appreciated and heralded for the role that you played in what we drink today in america an
2: ordinary c student at a a state college can rise above the ashes
1: thank god because that describes me to a t (laughs) (laughs) maybe one day mike we'll get there (laughs) maybe we'll get there That was a great interview, and I can't wait to break it down. But before we do that, let's hear a word from the people that helped make this podcast happen. And that actually includes you out there listening. So don't forget to like and subscribe because it does matter. Thanks.
4: This podcast was brought to you in part by Beachwood Audio. Beachwood Audio provides sound acquisition, post, and design services for individual, corporate, and commercial clients. For more information, contact Adam at soundfilmvideo.com. Mike, I think if there's anything I've learned from this
0: interview, it's that our success is one quick lawsuit away from being able to be sustainable. Absolutely. (laughs) It also is
1: something, it's a theme that has started to play out in this whole first season, which is that. If you start out with money, then your chances of success are dramatically increased. And if you're always trying to chase the capital and you're always trying to find the money to finance the vision that you have, you're probably fucked.
0: Which is particularly true for Bill Owens, a true visionary. A man that can just see things coming like no other. Guy that definitely suffers from being ahead of his time. Yes, or really undercapitalized. Correct. Because you could argue he was perfectly on time, didn't have the capital. Some other less visionary douche, we could say, came in who had money, saw, oh, my God, this dude's doing it right. I bet we can do it better because we got a pile of cash. And boom.
1: Yeah, that's also, I guess, a theme that you see with with Bill is that he impresses me as a guy that has the vision. He's not the guy that is doing a lot of the boring work of figuring out things like, is this legal?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he started a boiler room. I don't think he did it on purpose. Like he didn't know he was making a boiler room going into it. Yeah. But he absolutely did. The guy was the guy was just shooting from the hip, in a true American cowboy of the '80s era. He starts his first brew pub in America
1: with ninety-two thousand dollars in capital, and today that. Uh, f- factors out to somewhere around about $300,000. Mm-hmm. So to get a brewery off the ground, still not a lot of money, really. Because no. that's also a combination brewery and restaurant. And you're doing it at a, a period of time where it's
0: not easy to get the equipment. I mean, we started our brewery in 2015 with $1.2 million, and we were still underfunded. So to, to do it on $300,000 yeah. is lunacy. Small scale system, but still, it's well. You're opening a restaurant, which we didn't do, which is crazy. Like, which has its own separate expenses and a ton of operating capital requirements. So, like, yes, like it was, it was shoestring from the get go. It's also harder to manage, which is probably part of the problem with the franchise model on it. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult thing to wrangle all those parts. You got to have people in place that you can trust, which means you got to pay them well, which means you need more capital. Which he raised additional funds. At one point in time. And it sounded like his operating capital just chewed all that up.
1: When you think about the timing on it, starting America's first brew pub, that's interesting. It's a footnote in American beer history or American business history, if that's all that he had done in the industry. But he did so much more than that. I mean, he uses his background as a photojournalist and a journalist to help transform how people homebrewed to also start very early trade magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them geared more towards the industry itself. The other one geared more towards the broader general public, yeah. the consumer. So he's really an advocate. I mean, he's helping change the conversation and his idea, his concept of franchising that brew pub model the timing of that, you're right, the timing of that was perfect. Everything would have been different for him, I think, if he'd started out with a lot of money. But the fact that it took him nine months, yet at the same time only nine months, to put together the capital, do something that nobody else had done, that in and of itself is pretty impressive.
0: I really appreciate how he was also the country's first brewery shit poster, so to speak. He was making (laughs) beers called Alimony Ale as a dig (laughs) at his CPA's wife. He made a beer called Diaper Pale Ale (laughs) because his bartender had a baby. That's a disgusting name. But, like, he's making these
1: ridiculous names. He might have gotten the first cease and desist letter in the history of craft beer. Yes. And then he played (laughs) Dumb
0: in Court. (laughs) Jasmine Devil. Never heard of him.
1: Never heard of it. I didn't even know Disney did cartoons. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Mickey Mouse? sounds like a Nazi. Yeah, I think I saw that one. (laughs) (laughs) But damn, man, when you unpack that this guy is the origin, you trace back Amber Ale. Mm -hmm. Amber Ale in the first kind of wave of the craft beer movement was the number one best-selling style. You talk about craft breweries in the 90s, they all made it in amber, and amber was their primary thing, and Fat Tire, uh, Amber Ale by New Belgium, has been one of the best, well, it's been the best-selling craft beers at various times for a lot of the past decade or so. And the seasonals. When I break down the things that I hate about beer, um, I think that list is probably Bud Light, followed by pumpkin beers by anybody ever.
0: But people do love pumpkin beers. People do, and people still drink Bud Light. I mean, I had one yesterday. I actually had like six yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. And what what I thought was really brilliant about the pumpkin thing, too, is, again, that he makes this pumpkin ale. He does it all the right ways, all the things you're supposed to do. You know, you get the pumpkin and you cook it and you bring out the flavors from the roasting and you put it in the mash because it's going to jam up everything else in the process. And you try to pull out all these sugars and the flavors. And then at the end of the day, all this care, effort and time you put into it. Guess what? Still doesn't taste like pumpkin. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, well, shit, we're selling a pumpkin beer. It needs to taste like pumpkin. I'm going to go down to the store. I'm going to buy pumpkin pie spice because people don't know what the difference between pumpkin pie spice and pumpkin actually is. And I'm going to use that. And boom, I am just created the second best-selling seasonal style in the country just because I was looking ahead and thinking about what people would want and like. Well, and even that—
1: connection of the dots is pretty brilliant it's how so many seasonal beers are done it's how so many really kind of even like just weird varieties of beers are done you know we had a a brewery here in cincinnati that was part of the early wave in the aughts called blank slate and it was a really good smart brewery and i remember those guys uh used to do a worst beer w-u-r-s-t
0: oh the worst beer
1: and it was not the worst beer, but uh, it tasted like a sausage. Yes. (laughs) Which, you know, I didn't want to pound a bunch of them, but it was a really smart beer, and the way that he did it, there was not meat in it.
0: No, it was fennel and cumin and whatever else, celery seed, that goes into that.
1: Yeah, and so that way that that you mirror, you mimic... The flavors that you expect from something, which is the spices that
0: go into it, that's done all of the time now. And let's not pass over the fact that he created the number one selling style of craft beer in the country that continues to outsell every other style almost put together as a lark. He did it as a damn joke to poke fun at a situation in which his CPA was going through, and he created IPAs. Right. American IPAs, at least. I mean, yes. English IPAs have been around for a long time. We but don't need you, to get into that horseshit. Yeah.
1: But, and, and if you go out there, I mean, you know, you can pick up a Samuel Smith's and most bottle shops, a Samuel Smith's IPA, and that's a good traditional English IPA. And it is not an American IPA. You know, American IPAs are really high hop. You know, they're really high IBUs. And it starts with Bill Owens does start as a lark as you say but I think that that's what's even more intriguing about that is the Alpha King competition that he started and he starts this competition at Great American Beer Fest it originally is not an official part of Great American Beer Fest it becomes that so when we look at Bill Owens starting this Alpha King competition and and what that means you basically have I mean there's a gazillion different varieties of hops these days but there's like a a basic breakdown that hops are either uh
0: alpha hops or aromatic hops which is largely changing in modern times but morphine it's less but the alpha acids is what makes hops bitter
1: that alpha is a reference to the bitterness is is the point here what do you think man do you think it's just coincidental that he starts this Alpha King competition at this very influential national beer festival. And within the next five to six years, breweries all across the country start to make American IPAs, really hop the hell out of beers and transform what American craft
0: beer tastes like. Is that a coincidence? I mean, it could be. Is it likely? No. It seems like it's a direct causation, not a correlation. Yeah. And then you look what happens after that. After that catches on, and these brewers get so excited about this competition and showcasing their skills and leaning into this truly American thing of more is more and more is better, which is just fucking America to a T. Then five, ten years later, the the quote unquote hop wars start in the country, and I don't. You definitely remember that because I yeah. remember that. Yeah. But basically, oh eight to. 2014 was how bitter can we make our beer? And then it just went past even balance. It went into totally just goofy land of thousand IBU, you know, dog shit basically. And, uh, you know, point being here, pulling it back around is that, yes, this competition spurred what became the love in this country for the West Coast IPA, which dominated craft beer until the New England IPA came out you know, four or five years ago.
1: Impossible to prove that Bill Owens is singularly responsible for the transition from Amber's being the predominant style in American craft beer, which he started, to bitter IPAs becoming the predominant style for another
0: decade. But
1: I mean, that's well, I exactly think it's what true. he
0: did. That's exactly what he did. Which he didn't set out to do and he didn't do intentionally, but that is exactly what he did. And he did the bitter beer thing out of bitterness, I think. <laughs> it 100% was. <laughs> he, he kind of, this
1: Jeff Harris things, and, and I don't, you know, there are two sides to uh, every story. And it's Jeff, Jeff Harry's, right?
0: I don't remember. I don't try to remember people's Avenue. names that treat people like crap. Jeff, Jeff
1: Harrys. Yeah, well, and I'm sure Jeff has a, a version of events
0: that um, is a bit different. That's true. And let's not get this twisted. Bill Owens probably isn't the best person when you get to know him. I mean, he's been divorced <laughs> how many times? He's had how many business partners that he's lost? He's, I bet once you get to know the guy a little bit of the sheen comes off. I think that I would love him, but I
1: suspect that he's perhaps difficult.
0: <laughs> <laughs> As most visionaries are.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think that the being a visionary, being an artist is, um, you know, so it, which the same thing we've heard that said multiple times about Jack McAuliffe, right? I mean, Jack McAuliffe uh, sounds like a really good guy and definitely a visionary guy. Also, definitely a pain in the ass. Oh, yeah. I mean, so... I think that those things, you know, vision uh, vision and artistry and being a pain in the ass, they're uh, often companions, but... Huh. I'm starting to think maybe um, I'm a pain in the ass. I've heard... (laughs) That is all over Reddit. (laughs) And it's why I'm unemployable in
0: Cincinnati. <laughs> and this so, has been yeah. Pain in the Ass Podcast brought to you by Brett and Mike. <laughs> Massive pains in the ass. <laughs> but yeah, this
1: uh, Jeff Harry's, he I'm sure that his version of events is a little bit different, but I have trouble breaking it down just from an objective standpoint. I mean, damn, man. He sold Buffalo Bills for, at least according to him, what he had into it. So he didn't even make any money on selling America's first brew pub. What he wanted to do was distribute and grow those brands, you know, America's first amber ale, Mm -hmm. America's first American IPA, Mm -hmm. pumpkin beer. Mm -hmm. He wanted to distribute those on a national basis. And he might have done that very successfully. But for lawsuit number, whatever it was that he got into over this, what sounds like a really ridiculous, trivial bunch of bullshit on uh, the packaging and the map on the packaging. Mm -hmm. And in this, Jeff Harris, you know, takes the entirety of what Bill had created
0: away from him. You know, that I think about it, he was probably waiting for a moment like that. He wanted that gotcha moment. Just one minor slip up, boom, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, seems like it. And um because otherwise it's a minor transgression. Like who cares? Right. It's like, well move on. You're gonna keep right. making money, I'm gonna keep sending people to the to the original location, and I can keep living yeah. and, and trying to do a thing.
1: So what precipitated that? I mean, he probably thought that Bill was doing a shit job of distribution or whatever. And uh, yeah, and
0: again, I mean It he's, could be he thought Bill was making tons of money when he wasn't too.
1: Also possible. He's got his side. But um Yeah. I don't know, man. It's just, um, it irritates me. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a little too close to home? (laughs) Yeah. It it, (laughs) it might. Uh, so, so the thing about that relationship for whatever it is, I said a minute ago, I think without really explaining that the whole bitter beer thing kind of came out of bitterness What we see is that Jeff Harries winds up taking these brands, including Alimony Ale, away from Bill Owens in this lawsuit. In the 90s. In the 90s, late 90s. And it's right after that that Bill Owens starts this competition to crown the bitterest beer in America. Are those things coincidental?
0: Well, he created the bitterest beer in America <laughs> he because already. of a bitter situation <laughs> yes. once already. So it would yeah. make sense that he would then additionally create a competition to showcase the most bitter beers in the yeah. in the country. He spread his bitterness across America. <laughs> <laughs> you will know so, yeah. how bitter I am. <laughs> it, it it is great that he
1: lost, you know, the bitterest beer in America and then he just decides to uh, you know it's not like he's getting back into the beer business to brew the, the next great American IPA, what he's doing is more flooding the market
0: with that style. Oh, whether intentionally or not, that's exactly what he did. I suspect it's intentional. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you want to have the most bitter beer? Guess what? Everyone's yeah. going to have bitter beer now. <laughs> I think it's one of the most beautiful,
1: poetic, fuck you
0: moments in
1: <laughs> the history of an industry.
0: So I think to summarize this whole thing, Bill Owens... Should be known by more people in this country because Bill Owens shaped the landscape of beer styles in America. He shaped this more is more when it comes to beer. He brewed the first spiced pumpkin beer. He created Amber It really helped change seasonals. It really did. It changed exactly what seasonals were in this country, and it moved things away from just malt and hops into the realm of spice, made Christmas beers what they are, arguably. He started the first brew pub and that whole model and spurred that on. I mean, he did the contract thing. The guy was prolific. He had an impact on this country and our beer drinking and availabilities like you wouldn't believe. And hopefully we did a good job of shedding some light on the impact that Bill Owens had on American Craft Beer. Cheers to you, brother.
4: Cheers to you, Bill. Best of luck on your next trip. The Bruce Guys Happy Hour Podcast is a production of Bruce Guys Limited in association with 779, a leading video production and content creation agency. With over a decade of experience, 779 works with a wide range of clients, from global brands to boutique startups to mom-and-pop shops. Visit 779video.com for more information. That's the numbers 779video.com. This episode was edited by Dan Fennessy, who is also our executive producer. This podcast was engineered by Adam Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening.